you did. Good afternoon, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat. Bookbeat is WORT's weekly show featuring discussions with Madison with Wisconsin authors. I'm pleased to have Thomas Pearson as our guest today. He's the author of In Ordinary Future, Margaret Mead, The Problem of Disability, and A Child Born Different. Thomas is a professor of anthropology and chair of social sciences at UW-Stout in Menominee. The book's subtitle, Margaret Mead, The Problem of Disability and a Child Born Different, is a good summary of three of the primary themes of the book. The intellectual evolution of the par- this paragon of anthropology, uh, Margaret Mead, her changing understanding of disabilities, in particular intellectual disabilities, and then a personal perspective of Pearson's life with his daughter Michaela, who has Down syndrome. If this wasn't enough to chew on, perhaps the most important theme of the book is elsewhere, and that is the author's own changes, both intellectually and also in his heart. But before we get there, uh, I'd like to thank and welcome Thomas Pearson to Madison Bookbeat. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, David. It's really great to be here. Yeah, I think we'll have a a great discussion. Um, Tom, your book, In Ordinary Future, has a number of different themes and stories, arguments to make about the academic world, your community, your family, and uh, and with great honesty yourself. I hope we can cover most of that ground, but perhaps the place to start is with your family. Can you tell us about your immediate family? Yeah, so I have three children. Um, They are now 10 years old. Michaela is eight, and then our youngest is six. Um, And yeah, at this age, life is very busy. Uh huh. Yes, I I can remember that <laughs> from my from my own experience. Um, and uh, did you have any experience uh, within your your sort of extended family with uh, trying to uh, uh, come to terms with uh, a person with dis- some kind of disability? Yes and no, and I say it like that because. I had, prior to having a daughter with Down syndrome, I had always thought about disability as something that affected other people or that, you know, I had associated disability with the aging process. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, there, there definitely were people in my family who who had, were dealing with medical issues or impairments um, or different types of disabling conditions but it wasn't something that I really had thought about as affecting me. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned it at some point, uh, I don't know whether, I can't remember whether it's an older or a younger brother who had um, some periodic psychiatric disabilities, but his aren't publicly visible, really. Um, and did that... Um, uh, sort of ground you somewhat in terms of what was coming next? I think so. I mean, so the, some of the stories that I recount in the book um, was a process of trying to acknowledge the different ways in which disability is always present in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that I had kind of ignored prior to having children. Mm-hmm. As I you know, the, the sort of the starting point for the book is recounting my experience after Michaela was born and wanting to try to make sense of that. It was something that I wasn't really prepared for when she was diagnosed with Down syndrome in the days after she was born. And so I, I had experienced it as something tragic, um, as something that 
was unwanted or to grieve over. Mm-hmm. People, people in my community, medical providers, had said they were sorry, as if something tragic had just occurred. Mm-hmm. And in those days following her birth and diagnosis, through that process of coming to terms with it, I began to question why is it that I was experiencing her diagnosis as something unwanted or negative. And then in digging further and unpacking that and trying to put that into context, one of the things I do in the book is just to explore the different ways in which disability is has always been present in my life. And whether that's siblings or myself who have struggled with mental health issues or um, grandparents who were, um, you know, I had a great grandfather who in later in life, he used a wheelchair. And so he dealt with physical disability. I had a grandmother who was institutionalized for mental illness. So as I began to just think about my own life and my own life history, really began to realize how disability is something that's not necessarily strange, that it's something that is much more central to my own experience, to the human experience than I had first, than I, than I had initially acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And uh, you make at one point a very, it must be a very difficult confession that at one point you hoped that she would die. Uh, I guess this is shortly after her birth. Um, and you're shocked by that then. And of course, you're continue to be aware of that. And does that weigh on you now? Or do you have you found a way to accept that at the time you were really constrained by the outlook on disabilities that that your neighbors and doctors and everyone else uh, shared? Yeah, so I, you know, and and I, I came to kind of see my initial reactions to her diagnosis as reflecting some of the bias and prejudice that exists and is deeply ingrained within American culture. So let me put that into to context a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, when when Michaela was born, um, initially we didn't have we didn't have any indication that she had Down syndrome, and little clues began to appear in the hours and days after she was born. When infants come into this world, as many people know, um, they're all scrunched up, and you know it's they just look. Mm-hmm. They look weird. new. <laughs> their their features, yeah, they look weird, right? Their features are sometimes hard to discern, mm-hmm. and there weren't any obvious health ailments or or other indicators that Michaela had Down syndrome, at least from our perspective. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, we came to realize that the the doctors, you know, after Michaela was born, initially had some suspicions, but they didn't say anything because they weren't sure and. Um, we never, we never engage in any sort of prenatal testing or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they wanted to wait a few days to see how her features would smooth out. And it was in those, those, you know, the day after we brought her home that we began to, um, you know, just kind of suspect ourselves. Um, just little things that um, suggested. Hmm something might be off, so to speak. You know, she, her muscle tone was a, a little, a little different. Um, her eye shape, um, mm. you know, slightly, mm-hmm. you know, slightly discernible, yeah. like, yeah, like, mm. well, like, like, um, you know, the, the back of her neck was a little, a little bigger and her ear shape was a little different. Mm. And I began to think about some of the reactions of the nurses after she was born and how they were different than just hours earlier. And so, you know, that led to this point where I found myself Googling Down syndrome and then realizing, oh, my goodness, um, I think Michaela might have Down syndrome. And so my partner and I, when we then um, kind of shared our suspicions with each other and then shared them with the the doctor, then then they said, yeah, you know, we, we thought maybe she might as well. They were going to bring it up at the one week hmm. visit. And so at that point they ordered a blood draw so that they can 
do the the genetic testing, mm-hmm. count her chromosomes to determine whether or not she did in fact have Down syndrome. So during this waiting period where we had these suspicions, but we didn't yet have a definitive diagnosis, that's where I was grappling with all of these uncertainties. And um, at that point in my life, I knew nothing about Down syndrome and had just kind of thought about disability as something that affected other people. And um, I was grappling with all these feelings of doubt and rejection, um, you know, kind of viewing it as this, as something that would be awful. And some of those kind of passive thoughts um, that maybe it would be better if she just didn't didn't survive these mm-hmm. first few days mm-hmm. began to, to pass through my mind. But just, just as a kind of a fleeting sort of thought. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that illustrated like the sort of sense of crisis right that mm-hmm. um that i was experiencing as i was reckoning with uh, this um you know this this diagnosis and um and yeah I, I think that is not uncommon um mm-hmm. when parents are facing a diagnosis like that um for a child and um there's this sense of rupture that that they are experiencing um, and the ways in which we grapple with that, the ways in which we react, those, um, you know, viewing something that is not inherently negative, but as something as, but, you know, like Down syndrome, viewing that as potentially tragic, I think that that reflects uh, unacknowledged ableist <laughs> beliefs and, and bias mm-hmm. that at that point in my life, I, I really wasn't aware of. Right. Right. So this, yeah, well, this was a, a real journey for you, uh, in, in both the personal and sort of intellectual process of of uh, understanding, you know, disability and differences. Um, you you recount an incident where Eric Erickson, who, in the, just to, for those in the audience who don't know, it was a leading child psychologist in the 60s and 70s. Uh, you recall this where Eric Erickson calls Margaret Mead, the paragon of anthropology, and asks her if she thought he should place his infant son, who was diagnosed as, quote, retarded, in a state institution or should keep him at home as part of the family. Uh, you write about this a number of times throughout the book. Um, what's the signif- significance of this to your story? Yeah, so that that became a way to to try to put my own experience in a historical context. So, a- as you mentioned, um, I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist, and anthropology is a is a field that it tries to understand what it means to be human in all its different Mm -hmm. forms. And at the core of the discipline of anthropology is this respect for human diversity and variation. Um, And so, you know, as I was coming to terms with my own experience um, of having a child who was born with Down syndrome um, and, you know, it was in the, the days and weeks after she, Michaela was diagnosed then that I was kind of coming to terms and, and accepting that and then questioning why it is I reacted the way that I did. Mm-hmm. And um, especially as an anthropologist, why is it that, you know, even as someone who was trained in a field that tries to understand and respect human variation, why did I struggle to come to terms with a child born different? And so, as I was thinking about my own experience and wanting to put that into cultural and historical context, I, um, you know, encountered this story about Margaret Mead, who hmm. is this iconic figure in, <laughs> excuse me, Margaret Mead is this iconic figure in the field of anthropology, but also well-known as a public intellectual mm-hmm. in the 20th century in the United States and worldwide. And she is this, sort of icon of cultural relativism, right? This idea of wanting to 
to respect cultural difference and diversity and try to understand it on its own terms and not judge something just because it might be unfamiliar. And so I encountered this story about Margaret Mead, who um, was in the, 19, you know, in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. she was, was close friends with Eric Erickson. And as you mentioned, in 1944, um, Eric's son, Neil, was, was born. And shortly after his birth, he was, um, he was diagnosed with what, at that point, doctors referred to as mongolism. So the term Down syndrome oh. didn't exist yet. And the, you know, the term that you used, retardation, I'm not even sure that that term was in widespread use in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Um, but the term that was used to classify Neil was the term Mongolism or Mongolian idiocy, <laughs> which, you know, has its own yeah. interesting history. Um, but Eric Erickson was advised by the doctors to immediately institutionalize Neil. And um, Eric's wife, Joan, was under sedation at the time. And the doctors, um, they didn't think that, you know, a a child with so-called mongolism had any future that would be able to learn. They told him that he probably wouldn't survive more than a few years. And they said the best thing to do would be to send him away and that this would be better for his family and for his wife, Joan, as well, that that way she would not have an opportunity to bond with Neil. (laughs) And Eric didn't know what to do. And Eric Erickson, you know, he was a young psychoanalyst who was, uh, he was becoming known for his work in child psychology and identity development. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's how he came into contact with Margaret Mead, because Margaret Mead, she also, um, in her early research, had focused on questions of culture and um, childhood development and how it is that, that culture is reproduced from generation to generation. And so she was known for her expertise on children and family and um, and things like that. And so... Eric called his close friend, Margaret Mead, to ask her for advice. What should I do? The doctors are saying I should send him away. Um, what should I do? And, and, you know, given how Margaret Mead is remembered today in the field of anthropology and beyond, one would think that she would have counseled acceptance. Um, but I was really surprised to learn that she had agreed with the doctors and recommended that Neil be institutionalized. And so, um, so he was, he was separated from his, his family and sent to uh, an institution. And Eric went home and told his other kids that Neil had died during childbirth. (laughs) Right. And then later they find out that that wasn't the case and causes enormous rupture in the family. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Neil lived to be a young man, and eventually his siblings were were told in some form or another about his existence, but they never had an opportunity to meet him. And this uh, this event had become a source of, of trauma for mm-hmm. um, for the Ericsons um, and for for the kids who then you know the other children for the siblings who. Um, had to grapple with with what had happened later in life. Right. And, and um, so... Yeah, that's a whole other story. What ha- I just yeah. happened to read more about the Erickson family as a result of that, and it was um, an ongoing sort of rupture or a split or whatever that happened mm-hmm. between him and his children. But but getting back to, to Mead, um, uh, her thinking evolved. <laughs> she didn't yeah. um, stay uh, in the mind of um, uh, these people are have a sort of subhuman form and um, must be put away. I, I found this one quote from her from 1959, um, and she said, I think we're going to have to widen the range of people we treat as human. We may have to have, we, we may hope to have a greater range of human variability and therefore greater ability. 
and that that was yeah. really far far <laughs> that was really far out um uh for the time yeah. uh, and then you 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 quote um and this is a statement made 10 years later than Reed and Mead in 1969 is from a professor of medical ethics at University of Virginia. He wrote this in the Atlantic in regard to the death of a child with Down syndrome. He wrote, true guilt arises only from an offense against the child, against the person and a child, a person and a child with deep, but with, but Down syndrome, a child with Down syndrome is not a person, hmm. and and that that was acceptable thinking. I mean, it was published in the Atlantic. This guy was a medical ethicist in 1969, and um, uh, that was sort of the state of the medical arts at the time. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 practice of denying healthcare and life-saving medical treatment to children with disabilities or with Down syndrome or other children who were deemed deficient and not worthy of life, that continued well into the 1970s. And the, the quote that you read reflects that, that mindset, that um, the sort of deep and thorough dehumanizing of, of people who were just viewed as inherently deficient. Um, and so, yeah, that, that continued yeah. right, um, into the 1970s. And like you said, um, you know, Margaret Mead's, her own thinking was evolving during that time. It was, you know, it was in 1944 when she had agreed with the doctors who were advising Erickson to send Neil away. And that reflected the the dominant thinking at the time that, children with so-called mongolism or Down syndrome or other children deemed to be feeble-minded or deficient, that, that they were subhuman, that they were, they were devalued and marginalized. And that was embodied in the practice of institutionalization, which was very common in the 1940s and into the 1950s. But by the 1950s... Are there still emerging... institutions for people with Down syndrome? As far as I am aware, um, I mean, the, the, the practice of large-scale institutionalization has changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the critiques of institutionalization of, of children with Down syndrome or other disabilities or of people with mental illness, those began to, to, to take shape in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, from a, a number of different mm-hmm. sources. And, you know, by the 1970s and 1980s, then there's this push to de-institutionalization. Yeah. yeah. And to kind of shift the sort of caretaking aspect of that to small-scale, community-centered types of entities. Right. I mean, there were, I recently read that at its height, the an institution in New York, which became infamous, uh, Willowbrook, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. <clears throat> had 6,000 residents there at one point. Um, yeah, and I mean, Willowbrook was known for the, you know, the wretched conditions and the neglect and the abuse that many mm-hmm. inmates experienced, which um, was not not was unfortunately not uncommon, um, but that led in part to the deinstitutionalization um, yeah. movement. I mean, when people realized that this was just um, uh, it's just not feasible, and it's it, and humans are treated inhumanely. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a, a critical incident. Uh, I think it's a critical incident, a turning point in your thinking, or or maybe the the what you'd already thought. It sometimes we have a thought, and then something happens, and it goes deeper. <laughs> um, and um, when you overheard a playground conversation with your son, uh, Adric, is that I'm saying his name properly? Yep. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> 
Uh, can you introduce and and read that section on on page one hundred and five? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so this um, you're referring to just a kind of an, an anecdote um, that yeah. I used to begin one of the chapters in the book, and I was just recounting an experience from about two and a half years ago, and this was in the context of the COVID-19 lockdowns where we weren't we weren't going to a lot of places where there were crowds of people. So mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time with my kids going on bike rides and visiting outdoor destinations such as playgrounds. And so um, one day during the summer, I rode with um, my three kids, Adric, Michaela, and then our youngest is Zora to a local playground. And there were a couple other kids there. So I kind of stepped back to allow them to play and just to, to observe, um, you know, when, when kids come into, when kids begin to, young children interact with Michaela, it's always interesting to see, you know, how they react. And parents sometimes are a little more suspicious or, or doubtful um, or maybe even like avoid Michaela, whereas kids, maybe they'll kind of pick up on some of the, the signs that she you know, might be a little different or she uses language differently, but kids tend to be pretty open-minded in comparison to adults. And so I was just setting back to stepping back to observe them play. And then they, Adric, the oldest, who was eight years old at the time, began to talk with one of the other kids who was about his age. So I'll just read this mm -hmm. section. My name is Adric, he said. I'm seven years old, almost eight. My birthday is in August. My talent is running and jumping. <laughs> so I raised, an, I raised an eyebrow and wondered why he was suddenly listing physical abilities. And then he said, that girl down there is Zora, my sister. Her talent is fighting. I chuckled and couldn't help but agree. Zora is a spitfire, and it's not unknown for her to bully Adric, who is twice her age and twice her size. It's usually not a violent or aggressive form of fighting, not something fueled by hostility or outright meanness. She's just forceful when she wants to be, daring, tough, adventurous, all good qualities. My other sister is Michaela, continued Adric. I listened intently, wondering how he would describe her. A brief contemplative pause. We haven't figured out her talent yet, he said. I was awestruck, and not because he couldn't think of something. Michaela does everything her siblings do. She runs, jumps, climbs, rides. She has no limits at the playground. She fights with her brother and sister and often dominates wrestling matches. Yet it is true that Michaela does not run as fast as Adric or climb as well as Zora, who is two years younger. She tires more quickly, needs to rest more, especially on hot days. Adric was riding a bike independently at an age when she still was still using training wheels. When Zora wants to get away, Michaela struggles to catch her. But Adric did not focus on any of her, any of these perceived weaknesses or delays. He did not resort to listing deficiencies, to comparing her to some assumed average or norm. He simply reasoned that we haven't figured out her talents yet. It's not that she does not have talents. We simply fail, failed to identify them. That I thought was... Fantastic. <laughs> I, I, I really thought, I mean, that meant a lot to me, and it, it changed um, uh, my thinking. It just sort of went deeper of, gee, we haven't, there are talents there. We just haven't found them yet. And, uh, yeah, she, and... <laughs> and she's not less uh, than that, but it contrasts awfully <laughs> um, with the previous description and of your that the school district was not on the same page as Adric. Um, at you turn to 103 and um, and this you're you're describing uh, you and your your partner as uh, as parents having meetings with the school psychologists or their mm -hmm. staff, 
uh, people. And and the last paragraph begins with, uh, but this system, um, and it, it really um, is kind of heart-rendering, really. Could you yeah. re- read a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just to comment quickly on that anecdote with with Adric and, you know, to me, that the really reflected the ways in which we interact with and view Michaela in our family. That, you know, even though as a parent, I initially reacted with uncertainty after she was born and experienced these feelings of rejection, that was something that that passed fairly quickly. And over time, I began to to view Down syndrome not as as disability or as as deficiency, but as, as difference. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's something that I sort of unpack through the book. And the reality is in our day-to-day lives, we don't view Michaela as anything but Michaela. Sure. She's my daughter. She's a sister to Adric and Zora. She is just a kid. And I don't view her through the lens of Down syndrome or or disability. And I think that really comes out in that anecdote um, where Adric is talking to other kids about his siblings and um, you know he he sort of he doesn't use that the language of deficiency to talk about her the deficits um, of deficits yeah, exactly that's what the school but, district's interested in was the deficits yeah and then you know I think we're in in American society today where this sort of interesting place where uh, people with disabilities and children with disabilities, um, you know, they have, they have rights and they have access to opportunities that previous generations did not have. Um, And, you know, the discourse of inclusion and accommodation has to some extent has been legit, you know, it's been legitimized and institutionalized. It's, It's something that is, it's just expected within our institutions, within schools in particular, which is great, which is excellent. And Michaela, you know, she, you know, she has um, opportunities that kids just a couple of generations ago, you know, was, was just unheard of for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, right. We were often obligated to traffic in the language of, of deficit and deficiency in order to make sure we can get access to the resources that will ensure that Michaela can learn and can fulfill her potential. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I recount, you know, in the book, you you were referencing this meeting with, um, with some of the, the school officials and, um, you know, Michaela is on a, an IEP or an individualized education plan. And this is the mechanism that exists to ensure that, um, children who uh, might have learning disabilities or need other accommodations that these, you know, that, that their needs are being met within mm-hmm. the school setting and that they can have access to learning. And so, you know, an important function of the IEP is to make sure that everyone understand what the needs are, what the goals are, and then how do we get there? Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was this, you know, as part of this process, this this moment where, in order to classify Michaela, um, if, if, you know, for her IEP, um, you know, and there's all sorts of paperwork and uh, laws that that govern this, um, and schools have to go through this process so that they can get access to whatever additional funding or resources are available to them. Um, but Michaela had to undergo a kind of, um, you know, some sort of competency competency test um, where they were comparing her abilities, her competencies, and in, um, in relation to her peers. And and yeah, she scored poorly mm-hmm. in a number of them. And so there was just this grueling experience of mm-hmm. um, one of the school psychologists just sort of obligatorily listing her deficiencies, Mm -hmm. um, her deficits, Mm -hmm. right? And 
I asked in the context of the meeting, because it's difficult to, to have to endure that, um, you know, how is this going to help us figure out how Michaela learns? How will this help us, um, you know, identify better ways to make sure that, that she can meet her potential? And at the time, that wasn't a discussion that anyone was prepared to have, that they were just going through this process of, of listing her her deficiencies. And so it really, to me, it kind of, yeah, but it reflected that way in which, you know, we parents and children as well, you know, they, they have to, they have to traffic in the, this language of deficit, even though it might not be something that is meaningful to them in their, their day-to-day life. Yeah. Let me just uh, interrupt here for a second. Um, uh, you're you're listening to Madison Bookbeat on WORT. I'm your host, David Ahrens. Our guest today is Thomas Pearson. He's the author of No Ordinary Future, Margaret Mead, The Future of Disability, and A Child Born Different. This book was published last year by University of California Press. It was, uh, you, you mentioned the... Um, CRISPR and amniocentesis and other uh, mechanisms that reduce uh, the kinds of disabilities potentially that people have or the number of people who are who are you know exceptionally different what what I'm wondering is, even though we're no longer, um, as in the previous discussion, uh, executing or institutionalized people whose IQs are below XX or whose behavior is not normative, are, are we simply removing or refining the genome so that these people no longer exist? This is definitely a, a concern within the Down syndrome community, within the disability community. Prenatal screening is a, a tool that has a complicated history. Um, you know, the, with the rise of new genetic testing technologies and abilities, um, you know, going back to the 1960s and 1970s, and you mentioned amniocentesis, um, you know, this this has generated the ability to uh, to to determine whether or not a a fetus has an extra chromosome. Um, Down syndrome is a condition that is caused by a trisomy of the 21st chromosome, and so um, some of the the earliest prenatal screening technologies they can do a lot of things, right? You yeah. can there's a lot of different chromosomal conditions that that exist. Um, it's not just something that, you know, allows for identifying Down syndrome. Um, but that, that, you know, Down syndrome is one of the conditions that has often been, quote unquote, targeted by mm-hmm. prenatal screening. And in recent years, um, some of the new techniques that are available, um, sometimes known as non-invasive prenatal testing or screening they might go by the acronym NIPT or NIPS. Um, you know, these are, are much easier um, to do for the, the, the pregnant person that a simple blood test can um, look for pieces of placental DNA that circulate in the, the mother's blood. Mm-hmm. And that's a way then to, um, to, to screen for the potential of um, the, you know, the unborn fetus having an an extra chromosome, um, and that usually then prompts other types of, of testing, like amniocentesis. Mm-hmm. Um, but one, <clears> one you quote one that, person as saying that, I thought this was really uh, uh, on the target, which is, um, amniocentesis has made pregnant women into moral philosophers. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, well, that, that, that phrase that... Um, women becoming sort of moral pioneers um, thrust into this position of, of having to decide who 
belongs or who doesn't within the human community, um, you know, that, that is a kind of a, a framing or a phrase that, that the anthropologist Rainer Rapp um, came up with and um, wrote about in, in her um, groundbreaking study of amniocentesis um, that she published in the, the late 1990s. You know, and that was a time of, of change and trans- transition in terms of, of new reproductive technologies. Um, and the sort of determination of, you know, whether or not someone, you know, whether or not a someone is, you know, a life is worth living, right, was shifting from the kind of outward context of, um, you know, after a baby is born, the doctors, such as in the case of Neil Erickson, advising parents to institutionalize him, institutionalize him to the sort of private domain of genetic testing and then women making a determination or pregnant people making a determination on their own whether or not they want to continue a pregnancy. And yeah, and so, you know, the abortion rates of fetuses um, diagnosed with or determined to have Down syndrome, you know, varies extensively. Um, but there's a lot of studies that that suggest that you know that many people do elect to um, to mm-hmm. end a pregnancy when they they think that that fetus has Down syndrome, mm-hmm. um, and this just raises you know ethical questions about you know why is it that people view Down syndrome as something that um, is a life not worth living, right? Is right. something that is is so um, tragic or something that is so unwanted. There was one statistic in the book that I thought was really astounding. That is that um, there were only 18 births with Down syndrome in Denmark in 2020. I don't know without amniocentesis what the rate would be, but I assume it would be significantly higher and that there were, I think you say, 6,000 in the United States, which is arguably a bigger country. Mm. But Denmark uh, possibly has the most comprehensive social service and educational services in the world. So we don't have the problem of a parent being isolated and a child being isolated with few social or educational services that they might be even in much of the United States. So it's something else that's creating this, mm. you know, um, movement to uh, to abort a fetus that is Down syndrome or not normative in some way. Right. Yeah, I mean, parents and have all sorts of expectations about what they want their children to be like and what is was a desirable outcome for the future of their, their kids or their family. Um, and I think a lot of people, they buy into this, this myth that we can control that. Um, and so, yeah, in, in settings where, um, you know, there is comprehensive healthcare and prenatal healthcare and prenatal testing is becoming routinized um, where pregnant people have um, access to abortion rights, which, which they should, um, you know, we're, we're seeing that, that trend where, um, you know, fetuses diagnosed with Down syndrome are, those pregnancies are being ended. And, um, you know, the, the question that that raises is to what extent does it, you know, is it reinforcing, you know, to what extent are these sort of um, cultural expectations about what is or isn't um, a desirable future for a child? To what extent is that, informing these decisions and how is that then reinforcing the the stigma that down syndrome is undesirable or something that should be that is just devalued and marginalized mm-hmm. and, and but it's not just the the down syndrome it's i mean we you, you know used to have the lot of discussion about to bring it back again barbie and how uh, young girls were made to believe that this is normative, and everybody should meet that kind of picture of, or body, or mindset of, of a Barbie doll. And you kind of 
kind of squeeze that and squeeze that. What I'm thinking of is, is the curve of normality uh, gets shrunken and shrunken. And it's when I read the quote in the book about from the uh, researcher who has uh, perfected or is perfecting CRISPR and the whole range of things that uh, they believe that could be eliminated, I thought, well, what else is going to be eliminated? People who are uh, too short or people who have a propensity to gain weight or, 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 or that will all be within this very narrow range of genetic possibilities. Right. Yeah. And so it, it kind of feeds into that, that fiction that, that we, we can control the future, right? The outcomes of, of people's lives and that we can achieve some, um, some imagined normalcy or, or ideal outcome. Um, and that sort of my, that mindset, right? That, that thinking is also based on this model of, of disability that, that views it as, as an illness, right? Mm-hmm. That needs to be cured rather than as another aspect of human diversity and variation. At the end of the day, um, you know, disability is something that's inherent to the human experience, right? All of us who are going to be disabled to live long <laughs> enough, we're going to experience that right through the aging process or mm-hmm. we all, we all encounter, we all experience illness and vulnerability. It's not something that is extraordinary. Is something that um, is part of of life, and um, you know, there's there's this kind of you know mutual interdependency that um, is at the core of what it means to be human. This vulnerability, and you know, everything you were describing before, there's these kind of um, these shallow efforts to try to ignore that. Yeah, but but at the same time, we have to. Um, uh, understand and appreciate that that these are real struggles that people who are different have to undergo are undergoing mm-hmm. and that we have to uh, provide them assistance to be as fully part of our society as possible and, and you come head to head with that issue um, with the school district uh, during the pandemic can you describe a bit about about that epic yeah, I mean, just just really briefly, but yeah. that that was something that you know, um, like like a lot of schools, especially in rural Wisconsin, you know, during the as the pandemic dragged on, um, there was that first first year when schools were back in session. Um, you know, in our area, it was I think that was the fall of of 2020, um, but there were different measures put into place, like universal masking. Um, and distancing and, and efforts to at least follow um, the guidelines for 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 keeping children safe. But then by the, the next year, before vaccines were mm. even available to to children, um, the school was abandoning those safeguards. And all of that initial spirit of wanting to protect everyone, right? Um, to do what's best to protect the collective had had dissipated and it became more of, you know, all about individual choice. And, you know, having a child with Down syndrome in elementary school um, and Down syndrome being a condition that, you know, made Michaela potentially more at risk for severe outcomes, that was something that was very difficult for us to navigate. Um, you know, we we felt as if the the school district was abandoning this this responsibility to make sure that everyone can have have access to learning um, because they weren't you know they were refusing to follow what at that point were the universal guidelines at the federal, state, and county level for for keeping kids safe in school. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, it really kind of illustrated the ways in which vulnerability right is shaped by social circumstances. It's uh-huh. not something that's just located in the individual. Right. It's something that we can enable or we can disable right. by uh-huh. society. Right. What what's um you talk about the future of disability and a child born different. What do you feel is the future look like for Michaela? 
I'm op- I'm optimistic, but also realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we still, even though there there's so many opportunities that she has access to that f- previous generations didn't, we still kind of live in this paradoxical paradoxical moment where Down syndrome is is stigmatized, where um, there is often an unacknowledged bias or prejudice that influences how people perceive and interact with Michaela. Um, where we sometimes have to struggle to make sure that she's getting all the resources and opportunities that she's entitled to in order to um, to meet her potential. Um, so it, it's, you know, this is a a moment in time where to be a, a child with Down syndrome um, means you have, have so much opportunity, but mm-hmm. also um, you're still, you know, facing a lot of disadvantages that are created by society and by the prejudice that exists within the broader culture. Yes. You want, you want an ordinary future <laughs> for her, in a sense. I mean, to be yeah. functioning as a, you know, a real human, full human being. Uh, well, she's where she's acknowledged and mm-hmm. recognized mm-hmm. as a person, right? Not as, not as, um, not, you know, where others are not, viewing her through a kind of a lens of deficit or deficiency. Yes. Well, uh, we're going to wrap up now, Tom. Um, I've been talking with Thomas Pearson, uh, author of In Ordin- Ordinary Future, uh, and then uh, subtitle Margaret Mead, The Future of Disability and a Child Born Different. Thank you, Tom, for sharing your time with us today to talk about your book, uh, and your family, and Margaret Mead, and uh, this uh, uh, important work on on really the future of what we call human, being human uh, in our society. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, this is uh, this has been Madison Bookbeat on WORT. I'm David Aarons. I've been your host. Uh, The program was engineered by Andrew Thomas, and the program was produced by Sholly Pittman and Jade Isriri Ramos. Um, Have a good uh, day, and next coming up is uh, a jazz program from uh, 2 to 5, and I I really can't remember the name of this particular jazz show, but all around jazz. Thank you, Andrew. (laughs) Okay. The voice from the from the engineering box. Uh, thanks very much, and we'll see you next week for Madison Bookbeat. Hi friends, Old Bufana is returning to WORT.